0: Good morning, it's Monday the 20th of November and this is Govindra Thiraj based in Mumbai, India's financial capital but in transit right now. No I'm not or was not at the World Cup Finals in Ahmedabad. Our top stories and themes for the day. Demand or supply? What will drive oil prices and markets right now? Personal loans will get expensive but will that solve the problem? Every product and service can't be green even if it claims to be. Guidelines to crack down on greenwashing advertising, as it's known, are on the way. Sam Altman may return to OpenAI off chat GPT fame, but that will not solve the problem that AI is becoming. Thailand goes all out to attract high-spending tourists and more tourists. Takeaways. And finally, India lose to Australia by 6 wickets at the Narendra Modi Stadium in the World Cup Final 2023.
1: This is a core report with Govindraj
0: Atiraj. The oil market is a classic case study, at least at this point, of the role of demand and supply in markets and how prices can keep falling because demand is falling and supply or suppliers cannot always hold sway in a market. In this case, bullish analysts from investment banks like Goldman Sachs are predicting that the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, will raise prices and hold them by, of course, moderating supply as they've done in the past. And it does work. We believe that OPEC will ensure that Brent oil prices end up in the 80 to $100 range by 2024 by ensuring a moderate deficit and leveraging its pricing power, Goldman Sachs analyst Dan Struvian said in a note as reported by Bloomberg. Now, despite that, the U.S. benchmark WTI fell about 1.7% for the week, its fourth straight weekly retreat, and is around 19% from its highest close of the year in September. And Brent, by the way, is quoting around $80 a barrel. Shipments from some parts of the world are actually set to rise next month, while U.S. exports, note exports, have been surging. So we do track oil prices closely on the core report, as you know, because any sharp rise can affect India's economy, including, of course, nudging inflation numbers higher, which have just managed to come down. Back in the stock markets, most finance stocks came under pressure on Friday after the Reserve Bank raised weightages on personal loans. And more on that shortly on Thursday, the BAC Sensex ended 188 points lower at 65795 while the Nifty Fifty ended at 19732 that's down 33 points. A piece of good news which I mentioned in passing on Friday morning is that foreign portfolio investors have now reversed course and are buying. Now, this is after selling billions of dollars of equities in August, September, October and some part of November. And now, of course, they're buying. So the reason for this is a fall in U.S. Treasury yields to 4.45%. It had touched about 5% in recent weeks and perhaps lesser so. When I say lesser so, I mean reasons being the ongoing political or geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Lower yields in the United States means money will seek higher yields elsewhere, including emerging markets like India. Though foreign portfolio investors, just to note, have been selling across Asia in recent months and not just India. The Mint quoted that foreign portfolio investors have bought about 1,433 crores worth of Indian equities and that the total inflow stands at about 15,000 crores as of November 17th. Taking into account debt and hybrid and equities. Personal loans will get steeper. Will that solve the problem? Let's begin with the news. State Bank of India, India's largest bank, has said that it expects minimal impact on its capital ratios following the Reserve Bank's tighter rules for personal loans, its chairman told Reuters in a phone interview. The impact of that increased risk weight on personal loans, including credit cards, will be about 55 to 60 basis points, Dinesh Kumar Khara, the chairman of State Bank, said on Friday. State Bank's capital adequacy ratio stood at 14.2% on September end. Now, the Reserve Bank's move to raise risk weightages follows a rapid growth in the banking system's unsecured personal loan portfolio from around 60,000 crores in 2019 to about 130,000 crores currently. Credit cards, too, in this period have grown fast. The Governor, Das, had said in a recent monetary policy review that the higher capital requirement will make loans costlier and crimp growth, bankers and analysts told Reuters. So, the bottom line is that personal loan costs will go up somewhat, or they may even not by much, particularly if banks decide to absorb the costs in a competitive search for customers. The question to me, however, which at least is more important the way I see it, is will it matter either way? The Reserve Bank is cracking down and increasing risk weights on banks' unsecured personal loans and consumer durable loans from 100 to 125%, and risk weights on credit cards have been increased from 125 to among others, was addressing two issues, at least as I could see. First, of course, is the balance sheet of banks issue. Second, when it comes to small personal loans, there is a social and economic problem that's in a way been highlighted, which is the propensity of people to go for a high degree of loans in a way that their lifestyles are altered. And that is something for policymakers to think about. Living on debt is not easy, particularly if you're starting out in life, as many are, and getting into debt or staying in it at some level or the other to that extent the reserve bank seems to have done the only thing it can do which is to make money essentially costlier so i'm not sure this will solve the problem because at these levels high costs can easily be staggered into more emis or longer durations and that is precisely what could happen so the other question is that what is the role that fintech companies play in this fintech companies obviously bring efficiency into the system at one level it's needed. But at another level, it evidently contributes to borrowers to over-leverage or stretch. The ease of getting a loan with a click of a button or a tap on the screen of my mobile phone is addictive and transforming. So the issue is not whether these borrowers can repay or not. Quite likely, they will. The issue is that this is a way of living that they are in some ways being thrust into or pulled into, which is somewhat unfortunate. Remember, we are not talking about loans to buy immovable assets like houses, or for that matter, even movable assets like cars and two-wheelers. Eventually, people must decide in their best interest or their own best interest how much to borrow, how much to live beyond their means if they are and where to stop. But the role of efficiency and the role of fintechs must be examined more closely. The baby should not be thrown out with the bathwater, but closer scrutiny must follow. Merely raising the cost of capital perhaps is not enough. Government finalizes productivity-linked incentive schemes for Dell, HP, among others to make hardware in India. We haven't spoken of electronics and local manufacturing for a few weeks. One reason is the flip-flop we saw which alternated between banning imports of laptops to then monitoring them in a funny sequence of events which was quite unnecessary and could have been better thought through. Anyway, the government has now approved investment by 27 companies including Dell, HP and Foxconn under its $2 billion incentive scheme to manufacture IT hardware domestically, according to Reuters. Information Technology Minister Ashwini Vaishnaw said the companies are expected to invest about $360 million collectively and create about 50,000 jobs. Approvals have also been granted to domestic manufacturers like Dixon Technologies and VVDN, the minister said. So in May, the government had doubled the value of the incentive scheme to really push domestic production of laptops and tablets following a lukewarm response to the previous program, Reuters said. India is targeting an annual output worth about $300 billion in the global electronic supply chain by 2026. Greenwashing, here we come. A surprisingly large number of products and services make some kind of green promise in their advertising. This is called greenwashing and broadly refers to false, deceptive, misleading environment claims about products, services, processes, brands or operations as a whole or claims that omit or hide information to give the impression they are less harmful or more beneficial to the environment than they really are. This is now important because consumers are obviously Not just attracted to green promises and pledges but also end up or might be attracted to pay premiums or are increasingly willing to pay those premiums india's advertising standards council of india asci has come out with a draft of guidelines to lead to final guidelines on what advertisers can and cannot say when making a green promise the move could not of course have been more timely The draft guidelines, for instance, say that comparative claims like greener or friendlier should be justified or can be justified. Importantly, the draft says environmental claims must be based on the full life cycle of the advertised product or service unless it states otherwise and must make clear the limits of the life cycle. It also says that unless clear from context, an environmental claim should specify whether it refers to the product, the product's packaging a service, or just to a portion of the product, package or service. And then there is much more. I reached out to Manisha Kapoor, CEO of the ASCII or the Advertising Standards Council of India, and I began by asking her what prompted these guidelines at this point.
1: We have been kind of thinking about these guidelines for a while now. You know, in general, if you see consumer trends and the way consumers are putting their money behind brands that are promising green, we want to make sure that the brands also kind of earn that trust and that this it's a very important kind of issue for the planet. And therefore, we do not want consumers to kind of feel betrayed by putting their trust in brands that may be misleading them into thinking they are greener than they actually are. So this is something which obviously has been developing as a trend for the last, I would say, maybe even several years. But now we see that brands are pretty active in terms of talking about their green credentials in advertising. And therefore, we felt that this was an issue that needed to be investigated. So earlier this year, in fact, we ran a few scans to see the kind of claims that were being made by different brands in different categories And, you know, based on that, what's happening globally, we put together a task force to kind of look at some of these use cases and through the working of that task force, eventually have put out these guidelines for consultation.
0: Right. And were there any products or services that were particularly, for lack of any other word, guilty of, let's say, either over promising or greenwashing, which is the term used for these things?
1: We saw products kind of claiming green pretty much across the spectrum. I, I, uh, you know, so whether it was homes, whether it was uh, products like sanitary napkins, whether it was, of course, cars or, you know, energy companies, even, you know, your regular FMCG kind of brands talking about packaging being green, etc. So I think it was pretty much across a wide spectrum. So green claims are not really, you know, restricted to any particular sector. I think brands are seeing the opportunity across sectors. So, yeah, I I think it was pretty much, you know, you could name a sector and I'm sure we'd find green claims in it.
0: Right. And there is obviously an attraction for or a gravitation towards products or services which position themselves as green on the part of customers or consumers.
1: Yes, I think we are seeing that. I think there are, Trends that also indicate that consumers are willing to pay a premium for these products, that they are willing to kind of accept certain compromises to they may otherwise, you know, have other choices. So I think consumers are really kind of, you know, making their preference known for these products. And that's like I said, whether it's through premiumization or whether it's through, you know, very conscious choice making. And I think it's only fair that if they believe they want to support products that are green, then, uh, you know, that they truly are able to do that in ways that are transparent and honest.
0: Right. And are there international examples or countries where there are similar guidelines already or on the way?
1: So I think most of these self-regulatory organizations in Europe, for example, have had these now for the past, I would say, between two and three years in terms of timeline. These guidelines have been quite active. Just to kind of give you a context, you know, essentially greenwashing is a kind of misleading claim. So it's not as if today, let's say even a year back, if we had got a claim which was a greenwashing claim that we could not have processed it because we still look at misleading claims, right? But the idea of putting the guidelines is to make it just more much more explicit and explanatory for the industry in terms of what are the specifics that we will look at. Therefore, it kind of provides a framework for industry to also, you know, be cautious in terms of, you know, crafting their claims in in particular ways. So I think, like I said, in terms of just misleading ads, ASCII's code has been there for a very long time. But yeah, I think just increasing use cases of, you know, these sort of claims is uh, pushing us to kind of give greater clarity on what we would find acceptable or not.
0: Right. Yeah. And that's a useful point. So do you foresee any practical challenges? And as in, I mean, you tell companies to do this, I mean, which, of course, could be a larger ASCII challenge. But how do you disclose everything about what you really are claiming about being green, including, let's say, some of the finer points like is the product green or packaging green or the delivery of it green?
1: Yeah, I think the key thing that we are asking advertisers to do is to make claims that they can back, right? So if a part of your packaging is green, we are happy for you to say that, but do not imply that your entire product may be green or that your entire product is recyclable if only a part of it is recyclable. So I think what we are really pushing to say is that limit your claims to what actually is green in your product. Companies tend to make more overarching claims or absolute claims saying that this is a green product and which then means that in every way, every part of that product needs to be green or a significant part of that product needs to be green. You know, whereas if only a small a component of your product is green, that's also welcome in this journey, but then just claim that. So I think that's really what we are talking about. But I think this is also on the radar of the central government. They have recently formed a committee to look at, again, greenwashing and green claims. So I think this is something that will gather more momentum. I think not just ASCII, but we will possibly see, I think, even regulation coming in this some point in the future.
0: Right. And there are other areas, for example, the context of people uh, who make claims like influences and so on, where you are already working with government. And what's the timeline for this like roughly?
1: So, uh, you know, we've put out the discussion paper till end of this year. We are inviting comments. I'm sure there are going to be quite a few, given that this is really, you know, it impacts a lot of categories. So once we have all of those comments in, uh, you know, the task force will need to, you know, of course, look at it, reevaluate evaluate the guidelines that we've put out. I would say perhaps towards the end of first quarter next year, I mean, roughly, I would say, but of course, it depends on the nature of feedback that we get and how much we need to go back and change things around.
0: All right, Manisha, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Govind.
0: Open AI ejects Sam Altman but may take him back. And the big news over the weekend. Open AI shocked the world from tech geeks and users to venture investors when it ousted CEO Sam Altman, who, as we all know, had emerged as the face of AI or artificial intelligence following the success of ChatGPT, the company's chatbot. So till this surprise board ejection happened, most people actually would have been surprised to hear that Sam Altman and his company were not one and the same thing. OpenAI by the way was valued or perhaps still is valued at about 86 billion dollars and a stock sale was likely to happen. And the shock didn't end with Altman who by the way has also visited India and met Prime Minister Narendra Modi in the context of AI for good. Several people including OpenAI President Greg Brockman have also resigned and now the latest news is that the board is facing investor pressure to reinstate Altman and possibly the board itself may resign in coming days, according to Bloomberg. So, OpenAI's decision to fire Altman followed wide-ranging disagreements between the CEO and the board, including differences of opinion on AI safety, and that's important that I'm coming to that. The speed of development of technology and the commercialization of the company, Bloomberg reported. Altman's ambitions may have also played a role. He's been looking to raise tens of billions of dollars from Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds to create an AI chip startup, according to a person with knowledge of that proposal, who told Bloomberg. Altman was also courting SoftBank Group chairman Masayoshi Son for a multi-billion dollar investment in a new company to make AI-oriented hardware in partnership with former Apple designer Johnny Ive. So the board may have been put off by Altman raising funds off OpenAI's name and these new companies not sharing the same governance model as OpenAI, according to Bloomberg again. Despite being OpenAI's biggest backer by far, Microsoft apparently only had a few minutes of advance notice about Altman's firing. And Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella was apparently blindsided by the board's decision and has been in touch with Altman and pledged to support him in whatever steps he takes next. Nadella said in a blog post that they had a long-term agreement with OpenAI with full access to everything they need to deliver on their innovation agenda and an exciting product roadmap. So whichever way this goes, the importance of AI cannot be underestimated or re-emphasized. Whether Altman returns or starts something else, which could be similar possibly independently or otherwise, the fact is that the world is seeing the worst side of AI already. Think deep fakes on your phone to start with, and is still grappling with, and I mean the world at large, on how to address it or control it. Now, when I say this, I obviously refer to how it's impacting people and human beings and not so much organizations and enterprises who might be able to reap much more, particularly on the back end. Now, either ways, this is a dangerous place to be in and calls for leadership and statesmanship by companies that hold or innovate on AI, as well as regulators and public policy makers. To that extent, the sudden ouster of Sam Altman is a good flag, red or otherwise. Thailand ups the ante again. Indian tourists are in for another set of deals, but in Thailand. After offering free visa on arrivals to Indians, Thailand is now lining up hundreds of cultural and sporting events and may waive visa requirements for travellers from more European countries as it works to induce holidaymakers to spend more and stay longer, according to Bloomberg. There will be about 3,000 events like music concerts, marathons and other cultural festivities organized through to next year to draw tourists, the government said. Prime Minister Sreta Tavisin, who became Prime Minister in August, has identified tourism as a quick win to accelerate Thailand's economic growth. His administration has temporarily waived visa requirements for travellers from Russia, China, Kazakhstan, India and Taiwan and ordered airlines to add more routes while streamlining airport operations to cut waiting time for visitors. It also wants to allow nightlife entertainment venues in some areas of Bangkok, Phuket and Chiang Mai and Chonburi to operate until 4 a.m. starting next month. So now this is only partly about Thailand. It's also about what it takes and what perhaps it's required to attract more tourists and how governments, in this case, Thailand, are going all out. Thailand wants to touch its 40 million tourist mark that it hit pre-COVID. And it's still away from there. It's currently about 23 million tourists as of November 2nd week. But Thailand is also worried about lower spends and wants to incentivize tourists to spend more. And India's wait for the ICC trophy continued on Sunday as they lost to Australia by six wickets in the World Cup final at the Narendra Modi Stadium in Ahmedabad. With opener Travis Head scoring a century to take the Aussies to their sixth title. India scored 240, a score that seemed diminished right from the beginning, and Australia almost seemed to have no problem getting there, except for a few glitches in the beginning. That's it from me for today. Have a great Monday and a week ahead, and see you tomorrow. This was the Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in that is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at thecore.in. Thank you for listening.